Hey everybody, it's Jackie Johnson, host of Natch Butte. We talk skincare, we talk makeup, we talk all things beauty, and my guest this week is Ariana Maddox. Hi! What do we talk about, Ariana? Oh my gosh, we answer all of your questions. We do. We talk about how our dogs were in a Pharrell video together. We talk about... Um, exfoliation. Oh, we talk about exfoliation. We talk about uh, tanning, self-tanning. We talk about laser hair removal. We, we go there. We dive, do a deep dive in my makeup bag. We And Tom's. And Tom's. <laughs> and Tom Sandoval's. So maybe check out Natribute this week and see what we're talking about. See you there. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough. And to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D-S-T, T-L-D, you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again, break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FERAL and check out and get it a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Feral Audio. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. If you're a first-time, new-time listener, thank you. I welcome you. It is a great honor to have you if you've been listening for the last three years. Uh, I appreciate you returning and supporting my show. Thank you. Uh, my theme music there is by a band called Les Blanks. Check them out. More music of theirs. Also, there's a song at the end of my show uh, by a man named Matt Farley and Motern Media. And uh, he was a guest on my show, and he wrote a song about me, and I'm honored. So that now plays out the end of my show. Uh, so enjoy that. <clears throat> if you haven't listened to the show before, as I was saying, it's, you know, I just have a, a free-formed conversation with a guest. Uh, today is uh, a returning guest, uh, third time on, Mr. Dan Kavalik. And he is a human rights and labor lawyer, as well as a social critic, and um, I had him on, uh, he was one of my first guests, actually, early on in the show, and he, uh, I talked to him about a lot of great things. He sued Coca-Cola for paramilitaries uh, intimidating and murdering union organizers in South America. And he returns today to talk about uh, relig religious exemption, uh, especially a case that he's working on with Duquesne University where they're claiming religious exemption so they don't have to have... Uh, teachers unionized and all of this. It's kind of astounding, isn't it? And we go into it <clears throat> in depth and, of course, uh, just workers' rights and a lot of other issues in this country going on right now with working-class people, poverty. And uh, But I think it's astounding that uh, a Catholic university it can pull some pretty non-Christian uh, stuff to uh, affect uh, people's incomes and workers. And, well, you know, you'll listen to Dan Kovalik talk about it. He's far more artic articulate about the matter than I am. Um, also, I kind of I've been so busy in life lately that I completely, completely forgot about my uh, third year anniversary of this show. I've been doing this three years, as of um, May sixteenth. Three years of this conversation with Mentor, which I oddly is also the birthday of Studs Terkel, who. This show has been in honor of uh, and a tribute to, and, and, and of course, he influenced me. And if you don't know who the great Studs Terkel is, please investigate, because he's uh, truly uh, an, a wonderful oral historian who's talked to some of the world's most f fantastic people. So there you go. I just did, life is so crazy right now with uh, my wife pregnant and uh, trying to be a good father to be by working a lot so I have a stable base. Because before, before the wife came into my life, eh, Matt Dwyer kind of did what he wanted. Matt Dwyer would uh, not outrule uh, some day drinking and other, you know, I would have uh, multiple beers with lunch. 
and then go home and take a nap so I could return freshly for some more multiple beers in life. Uh, and then you meet somebody special and you go, hey, maybe I should uh, do some day drinking with this person. <laughs> Which we, you know, we did. We, I, we enjoyed life. But now, you know, there's, you're married. I have a kid down the way. I gotta, you can't be such a screw off. I mean, you can, because then you're what you would call my father. But, um, so, you know, I just, I've been really just focused on getting me stuff together. And, uh... Thus, I forgot that I've been doing this show for three years, and I didn't celebrate it. I made a lousy tweet. I had ambitions to write a lot about it. But if you do like my show, you can go to the Amazon link there at feralaudio.com, on the Conversations with Matt Dwyer page, and you could you anytime you buy stuff, I get a kickback of that. It helps support the show. Also, write a review about this show on iTunes, because that helps me. Just help me. I need help. I can't do this alone. I've been doing this three years. And I want to keep it going, and I want to keep it growing, so your support, and if you want to donate something, you can. It means a lot. It would mean a lot. Um, and I have some great guests coming up in the future, uh, so uh, I'm really excited. I'm going to get back to interviewing some more novelists and stuff, which is uh, one of my favorite things, because it forces me to read. I have to read those books to interview the novelists. keeps me sharp. Uh, but let's get on with this conversation with Mr. Dan Kavalik. It's a great very interesting, eye-opening, uh, mind-expanding conversation. The great Mr. Dan Kavalik. I was uh, just doing some reading on this. Uh, it's Duquesne University, correct? I'm... It's spelled funny, but it's pretty yes. Yeah, Duquesne, Duquesne University. Yeah, and uh, they ha- seem to have a history of, uh, uh, at least according to Wikipedia, they have a history of not being the best f- with labor practices. I think that's true. Yes, although they're one of their f- most famous uh, alums, Father uh, Father Rice, uh, Charles Owens Rice. Uh, he was actually a very famous labor advocate, um, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, that, and now with the case that you were sitting on, or it, it wasn't a case, it was a hearing? Yeah, it is a case, and it's been going on for quite a while. We just had a, um, a hearing, that's right, uh, a few weeks ago. But this has been uh, been going on for some time now. And is this it, them c- claiming uh, re- religious exemption? Is that a, a recent uh, sort of tactic that they're pulling, or is it something they? Well, it, 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 let's put it this way: it's kind of a recently. Um, it's not. It, it, this has been a tactic used uh, for a number of years, but it's now been kind of revived. Let's put it that way. After a period of dormancy, there's now about. Let's see, one, two, three, four, at least four universities, maybe five that I can think of that are using this tactic. Um, And Duquesne, the interesting thing about our case is that Duquesne, initially we went to Duquesne, which we generally do with employers. We we organized the adjuncts. We got a a very strong majority of adjunct faculty to sign – uh, union recognition uh, card saying, you know, they wanted the steelworkers to recognize them. And then we went to Duquesne and said, look, we have these cards showing that the adjuncts support us. Why don't you just voluntarily recognize us and we won't even have to go to the NORB? And curiously, it was they, their vice president, Stephen Schillow, who said, no, we don't want to do it that way. We want you to go to the NORB, file an election petition. And we'll do it that way. So we filed a petition. Their lawyer contacted me, and we had very friendly discussions. We agreed on a stipulation of election, meaning they actually signed a document agreeing to NORB jurisdiction, waiving a hearing, and agreeing to a mail ballot election in this case. And everything seemed, you know, fine. And then about three weeks later, they get rid of this lawyer who's from Pittsburgh. They hire a union-busting lawyer out of Memphis, 
And they now say, oh, we want out of the stipulation because, oops, we forgot we're Catholic and we want a religious exemption. So that was a very strange sense. And it looks like, I mean, I don't know. We'll never really know why they did what they did, why they agreed to the election and then, you know, decided to back out of that. But it seems like they were trying to line up with these other universities, Seattle University, St. Xavier University out of Chicago as opposed to the one in Cincinnati, and Manhattan College, all Catholic schools who were raising this exemption. My my guess is someone keyed Duquesne in that, that they should join this bandwagon, though it's not – I want to be clear, not every university has signed up for that bandwagon. Georgetown University, pretty good school, Jesuit school, they have voluntarily recognized their adjunct union, as uh, has San Francisco University, has also recognized uh, an adjunct union, and that's a, a Catholic school as well. So not everyone is lining up you know, along these uh, lines, but, but yeah, there are – there are several schools that are taking this tack at this point. What is the logic be- behind their argument? That's what fascinates me. How is that? How is? Are they like Jesus Christ didn't acknowledge unions, and nor were the apostles unionized? Like I mean, it's like I don't understand how that is a logical argument. Well, that's the tricky part, and, and you know it's interesting because I've been on a number of shows, and, and Duquesne never shows up to argue their point. And the reason is it's impossible to argue. It makes no sense. Because as you suggest, I mean, first of all, the Catholic Church has been very clear since Pope Leo, if not before, if not since Jesus Christ himself, that they support the right of workers, that they support unions. They're very clear about this. It's not a debate. And Duquesne and their publicity over this issue have to acknowledge that. And they do. They say, okay, well, we understand Catholic social teaching makes it clear that we have to support unions, but, okay, and then the but is, it's very hard to figure out. They say, but but in this case, somehow the NORB, if they assert jurisdiction here and we have to recognize this union, it's going to impact somehow our religious rights. But they really never ever say how that's possible. Meanwhile, they have four other unions on campus that they bargain with. You know, so it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it just seems, you know, sadly like, you know, uh, your run-of-the-mill ploy of any employer to find any basis they can not to recognize the union. You know, even though, as they say, they, in theory, acknowledge the right of workers to be represented. And, and it's it's a right without exception. I mean, again, Pope John Paul II was very clear about this. Uh, there's been pastoral letters from the U.S. Bishops Conference, very clear on this. Workers have a right to organize, and and that's all. And and again, once that is clear, I don't see how they get out of that. And 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 by the way, you know, as I as I indicated, we went to them early on and said, if you want to bargain outside the NORB jurisdiction, we'll do that. And we have, on a couple of occasions, made that offer to them, and they still say no. What is the, so exactly, clearly it's yeah. Oh, I was just going to ask what exactly is the NRB for someone who would not know. NORB is the National Labor Relations Board. So in the private sector, if you organize a union, uh, you generally go through the National Labor Relations Board, which will conduct election. They oversee you know bargaining if there's unfair labor practices and bargaining, etc. You go to the NORB. It's a government agency. It was formed, I guess, in 1935. Um, by the Wagner Act, now known as the National Labor Relations Act, and it governs private sector unionization. Oh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, so that's all. And so they're saying, oh, we don't want NORB jurisdiction. And we're saying, fine, then don't have it. Just recognize this and bargain outside it. But they still say no, which again shows that the whole argument's a pretext for them just not wanting a union, period. Yeah, I was reading how they have been very uh, known for uh, very low wages and not offering benefits. And like, uh, I believe I've read something where they had a teacher removed who was with, who was like gravely ill, and they kind of like removed her from campus even. I don't know if you're aware of it. <laughs> 
Yeah, Margaret Mary Voitko. Yes. Uh, yeah, I knew her very well. And yeah, I mean, she was 83 years old. They fired her after 25 years of service. And like most adjuncts, and I want to be clear, I mean, the way they treat their adjuncts really isn't treat different than most universities treat adjuncts. And that is that they get very low wages, uh, anywhere between, say, $2,000 and $5,000 on average per course. Um, they're hired semester to semester. They don't get benefits. And they barely eke out a living. And, you know, when the universities decide they don't want them anymore, they just don't renew them for a new semester. And this is this is now becoming more known. I mean, for years this has been happening, and it, it was kind of the dirty secret of academia. You know, where you know students are paying tens of thousands of dollars a year to go to school. Meanwhile, their instructor who's teaching them is making three thousand dollars to teach the course, and they and that instructor may even have a PhD, and the students don't even realize this. Essentially, the universities, including Duquesne, have followed the Walmart model of employment where they want a contingent workforce that's low paid without benefits and those are the people that are running our schools now uh on average i've seen anywhere from 50 to 75 percent of the faculty at u.s universities are these adjuncts who get paid next to nothing have no benefits and no job security the idea of this you know nice tenured track faculty job uh, career, those are are going out the window. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that this is affecting the long haul of our country. Of, it, I mean, it's going to weaken the educational system. It's it's astounding. Yes, in a number of different ways. So, first of all, any adjunct, and a lot of you know the adjuncts I know, they work very hard and they do their best and they do a good job teaching. But they'll tell you, look, in order to make a living, I mean, just do the math. In order to make a living, they got to teach four to five classes a semester just to get above the poverty line. Okay, well, that's a lot of darn classes. So there's just no way they can give the attention that students, you know, uh, need, uh, you know, or entitled to, um, and that they would get in a situation where the person is full time and could teach two or three classes a semester. So that's one way in which the academy is being undermined. The other thing they don't do is research, or not much, because they don't have the time to do research, and they're not paid to do research. So again, you're losing out on on the research value of, of faculty. And the other thing that's happening is people are now getting wise to the fact that even if I get a PhD, I'm not going to get a tenure-track job. I could end up being an adjunct, end up being poor after decades of service. So guess what? I'm just not going to get a PhD. And I'm not going to get a master's degree because it's not worth it. So, again, the academy's weakened uh, from that point of view because they're not reproducing, you know, uh, uh, the, the faculty with, with those advanced degrees. So, you know, it, it, the academy's being destroyed. And, and so where is all the money going? Because uh, uh, university education has gone up astronomically faster than any other – uh, sector of the economy, uh, even in fact uh, high, quicker than health insurance, even during years which, as we know, have had pretty minimal inflation, right? And so, where is the money going to? Well, one, it's going to the few very wealthy administrators who can make, you know, the, starting with the president, over a million dollars a year. And then you have these other administrators, vice presidents and provosts and whatnot who can get you know hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So it's going to them, and it's also going to to buildings. You know, universities have been engaged in these. You know, uh, they're more like Donald Trump's now. You know, buying real estate and building properties. That's where the money's going. It's not going to the people who actually are doing the work in the university, which is teaching, you know. And again, the, this dirty secret is starting to finally get out. And I think uh, the more it gets out, the more – the whole, you know, everyone is upset about students and, and their parents and uh, faculty. It's just not, not right what's happening. Yeah, it's incredible. And of course, you know, the spending on sports programs and coaches, I mean, you see what some of these uh, – 
coaches make, and it's just it's it's upsetting because it's it's not a part of the educational system, really. It's more of a a means for profit for the schools. Exactly. Even though they claim to be nonprofits. By and large, and that's a joke. You have administrators making a million dollars, and they're nonprofits. I mean, it's not—it's not real. You know, they're not paying taxes. And then, meanwhile, they have—you know—these uh, adjunct professors who have to get food stamps to survive. It's—it's it's really incredible. And again, it's really. Uh, an indicator of the rest of the economy, where the rest of the economy has gone over the years to these low-wage contingent jobs, and and you know the whole society is suffering as a, a consequence. Is there a defining moment where our universities started taking this this turn, or is that sort of a hard thing to pinpoint? Well, I understand that it's been a process uh, since the 1970s, actually. Um, uh, but it, you know, it was gradual at first, and then has picked up to the point where you know most most of your faculty now are adjuncts. Though so, you know it is it is interesting that you know the the better schools don't have adjuncts or don't have many. You know your your Ivy League schools don't use adjuncts like this. Um, it really is you know the the higher you go in terms of you know how good the quality of the school is, the less adjuncts you have in truth. Um, and it's interesting too that those raising the religious exemption, frankly, are not the best Catholic schools. You know, uh, I'll be honest. Georgetown's not raising it. Okay, it is the best Catholic school. Um, so that's kind of uh, interesting as well. But uh, but yeah, it's a process that's been going on since the 1970s. And again, I was in school. I was in college in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, and I had no idea this was happening. I mean, and, and most students don't know. They don't know that the person teaching them is an adjunct or a full professor or whatever. They don't pay attention to that. Um, it's also, I mean, the obvious irony of it's not very uh, Christian of these. <laughs> I mean, what they did to your friend Mary, and uh, it just doesn't seem like a good Christian message from it's very contradictory. Well, that's right, and that's what you know, and, and that's what I've been saying, you know, over the last now few years. We, we, you know, we organized them in 2012. It's 2015. They're still fighting us, you know, and that's what I've said. I mean, they 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 act like we are somehow that the union is an existential threat to them and to their, you know, to their Christian mission. And my argument has been all along that no, the threat to your mission is you. Is you who are raising this bogus religious exemption to avoid unionization and to avoid treating your workers with dignity, you know? And they they lament and they lamented in the hearing we just had, um, Duquesne, that uh, oh, you know, students are, are more and more turning to secularism, and we you know we need to save them from this. Well, a good place to start is practicing where you preach, right? I mean, people are turning to secularism. So-called because they're disillusioned with the church because they don't act like they tell you you should act right and and that's really the threat to the institution is 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 the hypocrisy that they exhibit and I think until they they uh, acknowledge that and and they wake up to that they they are going to damage themselves and Duquesne has been very damaged by the way in the Pittsburgh community through this. They have no supporters for their position because no one understands what they're saying. They, how could it be? How do you need a re- religious exemption from unions when your when your faith says you support unions? It's it's completely bizarre. Do, does Duquesne acknowledge the that people are against it, or do they not give a shit and they just keep going about business as usual? Well, I would say. You know, and again, I don't know what's going on in their own mind. It's certainly from all appearances is that they're going uh, on as business as usual. I think, you know, if there's any hand wringing within the institution, any debate over this, it's not evident to me. I think they've kind of decided they've they've carved out a position that they now need to hold on to, which I think is foolish. Um, but I don't see them turning back 
and we've tried to give them an out. As I said, you know, we've sent them letters saying, hey, just bargain with us outside the NRB, and then we can just – you know, go go forward with that. Let you off the hook, but they don't even want to take that olive branch. So, now the you know the one bright spot is the current president Charles Doherty, who seems to be the person pushing this religious exemption position. Uh, he's retiring, so maybe there's an opening there. You know, but the other schools certainly don't show any any signs of relenting at this point. Now, when you said that this uh, would religious exemption lie dormant for a while, was uh, was that because uh, it's kind of a new thing that I'm aware of in the last couple of years? Was it a in the same uh, vein as what's going on with Duquesne University, or is it also sort of like what's going on in Indiana when it first sort of reared its ugly head? Well. The first case that I know of, or the first big case, was a case called Catholic Bishops, which uh, went to the Supreme Court, I believe, in 1978. And that was actually involving true parochial schools, like grade schools and high schools, you know, where, you know, in fact, they do – the mission of those schools is to inculcate the Catholic faith, you know. Now, I, I still don't understand really why the – you know, unionization of those schools somehow infringes on their mission, but at least, at least those are truly parochial schools. So those types of schools have been claiming an exemption to some extent for years, although in Pittsburgh, again, all the parochial schools are unionized, which is kind of ironic. Um, but it's only been in isolated cases over the years that the universities have been trying to claim this. And now there's, like I said, there's been a run of these now recently. Um, why that is most likely because, truthfully, the attempt to organize these adjunct faculties is rather new. So it may be – it's kind of a chicken in the egg. I don't know if it's is in reaction to this new organizing efforts or whether – it's because these schools have gotten to be more, I don't know, anti-union or right-wing. It's hard, 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 to, hard to say. Yeah, that's. It seems like this is a, a, uh, you know, part of a bigger problem because we seem to have so much union backlash, you know, with uh, great uh, Governor Walker and now uh, the. Uh, governor of Illinois, Rauner. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I should. I'm from Illinois, <laughs> but but uh, you know he recently had the he was fighting for the right to work, which I think got destroyed. In uh, I don't think anybody got on board with it. But it's like it's amazing how it's openly anti-union. Everybody is. If that I don't know. It, 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 it does it seem more prevalent than it used to be, or is it just? Does that, am I making sense on this? I feel like I... Oh no, it is more. It is more. It is more prevalent. I mean, because, um, and I think I can trace that back. I mean, I think really a lot of us see the opening shot against the modern labor movement to be uh, Ronald Reagan's firing of the air traffic controllers during the Patco strike, and that was early on in his presidency, uh, so early 1980s. I think this is where the right begins its real attack, its counterattack against unions. I mean, ironically, because Ronald Reagan himself had been a union leader, if you recall, he's president of the Screen Actors Guild, you know. So for years, I mean, the conservatives and liberals both seemed to be okay to live with unions. And then, again, you had this so-called Reagan revolution, which which continues to this day, by the way. I, I, I see pretty much all the presidents is is more or less part of that so-called uh, re revolution, which was really a counter-revolution. And so but, – but I do think even in recent years that anti-union um, uh, campaign has increased. And why is that? I mean I think in part because you know, with deindustrialization, 
the union movement has become weakened because, you know, we had such a strong base in the industries. And once those started collapsing, the union movement itself began to shrink. And I, I think that the particularly the Republicans, they smell blood in the water and they see a chance to just destroy us and get rid of us altogether. Um, and and that appears to be what they're trying to do. You know, and you mentioned Scott Walker, who, do, who did get his right to work legislation passed. Um, you have right to work legislation in uh, Michigan that passed. Um, you know, there there's efforts all uh, all over the country. And uh, uh, interestingly, uh, just just several years ago, someone showed me a map of all the right to work states, and they were all former slave states. You know, in the deep south. Uh, but that's not true anymore. You know, that's now moving north. You know, so that's new. That is new. And I, I do think we're in a fight for our lives. You know, and again, here, what is so upsetting is that you have now, you know, the Catholic Church has Pope Francis, who those of us on the left and those of us in unions really like and think he's saying the right things about unions and about workers, amongst other things. And you would hope that the Catholic universities would set a good example and say, oh, no, we shouldn't be busting unions. We should be you know, celebrating them or whatever. Instead, they're the ones leading the charge against the unions in cases like Duquesne, and it's heartbreaking. You know, they, they, are, they are really themselves undermining uh, the social uh, message of Christianity, and it, it's really, really sad. It's yeah, it's incredible. Now, do you do you personally have have you met uh, working people who are pro the right to work? Because it seems like to me anybody who would be on board with that as a as a you know a working class person, it seems very short sighted because you know you have no one fighting for your wages and it just I'm baffled how this is a movement. Yeah, well, I don't know myself, given the circles I run in. I don't know a lot of pro-right-to-work workers, but they're out there, certainly. And, you know, they've kind of been sold a bill of goods, you know, and you know, their point of view is, well, see, it's a free rider problem because what they'll say is, look, I can maybe get the same wages and then and not pay dues. So, you know, I might cake, cake and eat it too. But, of course, once you – you know what happens is even if you're not in a union, you many times, or even in a company that's unionized, many times you'll still get the benefits that the unions have negotiated elsewhere, right? Because they want to stay competitive. So you're benefiting from the unions um, without having a union now. But of course, once the unions reach a low enough density, uh, then all the wages will go down and you'll be screwed. But for the moment, they see. You know, some people, anyway, see the ability to um, essentially have the benefits of a union without paying the dues to the union. I mean, so I think that you know people have been kind of fooled that 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 is somehow a solution. Although that is a pretty short end game, I think, um, and I think people are finding that out. But I mean, I don't know. The U.S. is kind of weird. I mean, they always talk about American exceptionalism, you know, and. It was just generally meant that, that, amongst other things, that America's never, you know, has, except for very short periods of time, hasn't had the tradition of of, of a strong left that that other countries have had. And I do think there is some truth to that. There is uh, this kind of uh, philosophy in the U.S. of uh, individualism, and and even of of, you know, that people will fight for the right for other people to be rich. Even if they're not, because they think they're going to be rich. I mean, I think that you know, I think people have been fooled to think we all can be rich in this country. We can win the lottery, or we can be go on American Idol or something. And you know, you know, it is the American Idol type type philosophy. And I'm going to be the one to do it, right? So I'm going to fight for that for that guy over there, his right to be a billionaire, because I want to be a billionaire someday. And I want to have the right to do that and not have to pay much taxes and all that, you know. And that is such a strong, strong, uh, you know, ethos in this country. 
And so it's very hard to fight against that because it's really ingrained in people. And people, you know, on the flip side, if they're not doing well, they tend to blame themselves. Yeah. You know, it's their own fault. And again, the result is the same, that they, they don't. I don't want to say everyone, but there's a large swath of people who therefore don't kind of fight for systematic change because they think it's up to the individual to make that, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard people say, you know, <clears throat> you know, about uh, folks in poverty, like, well, they didn't work hard enough. They didn't, you know, pick themselves up by their bootstraps, which I want to find whoever coined that phrase and murder them because <laughs> it's not true. I mean, my father worked hard his whole life and, you know, he died a, pretty much broke. Uh, it's it, it's weird. I mean, I it, how we put blame on people in poverty. Here. We blame people in poverty here for like it's their fault. And you know, I I think uh, I don't know. I think things like the riots in Baltimore. I know there was you know that was due to police violence. But I also think the uh, uh, underlying um, message in those things is it's class. These are class wars. This is the people who've been oppressed. And it's a lot more than just Police brutality. Uh, which... Yeah, well, I think that's absolutely true, and I it, and I do see the the reaction to the police brutality, the movements against that, as as being hopefully an awakening of people's consciousness around, as you say, not just racial oppression, which is very real, but also economic oppression. Um, I, I do hope that that will gain some speed, you know. Because there just has been such a lack of resistance for so long. You know, you had, you had pockets of it. You had the Occupy movement, of course. But, you know, in truth, that was so inchoate it, and had so little direction that it wasn't particularly effective, I think, in all fairness. But at least it was a sign of life that there are people out there who want to resist. And But aside from that, and, and aside, again, the things I think about, and aside from the the you know, the peace movement, which was really strong uh, up to the, you know, invasion of Iraq in 2003, you know, those little bursts of activism, aside from those, there hasn't been much, you know, really since the 1970s of any real force. And, um, and the result has been what we've gotten. I mean, because you haven't had that resistance, the political right has continued to strengthen and, and what was liberal has become more conservative. You know, I mean, the whole political spectrum has moved to the right now because there's been no popular movement to push it to the left for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think people forget that even, I mean, didn't Bill Clinton do his fair share of union busting? Well, he... What he did was, you know, he was really the, the father of free trade, and he promoted all these free trade agreements, which undermined both industry and unions, yes. Not as in a direct way as, say, a Reagan, but it had the same result. He also broke the welfare state. I mean, that was really uh, Clinton. Uh, he also got rid of the Glass-Steagall protections, which prevented a lot of the financial man manipulations that led to the 2008 economic collapse. Yeah, I mean, really, uh, you know, Clinton and Tony Blair, his buddy on, on, on the other side of the pond, as they say, they were part of this new liberalism, which was really just old-time conservatism. <laughs> um, and again, I think it, because there wasn't this this progressive movement to force them to do otherwise, you know. Do you do you fear that if uh, Hillary Clinton gets elected, that we're going to have some more of the same, or do you? Because I know they're touting her as a very much a working class uh, candidate because her parents were working class. But do you do you really think she'll be concerned with working class issues and unions? I think the answer is no. She won't. But. You know, will she be better than the Republican opponent? Yes. I mean, yes. But will she, she's not going to be another Roosevelt or, you know, she's not going to be what we need. Um, you know, again, the Clintons have a long track record of being neoliberals, which, as I said, is basically being, you know, conservative. And so I don't have a, a lot of high hopes there, no. <laughs> Does anyone? I don't know. I mean, I think 
people will go to the ballot uh, booth and they're going to hold their nose and, you know, vote for the lesser of the two evils like we've done for so long. Since I've done my whole life, I've you know, I'm not old enough to vote for anyone decent, <laughs> you know, in truth. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, is that... <sighs> Are people overall maybe just feel slightly defeated or hopeless? I mean, you know. I think there is. I think people do feel defeated and hopeless. I mean, I think, you know, in truth, I'm not I'm not endorsing that. I think I think we need to have hope. Uh, I think that's without that we're lost, you know, and I think there's a lot of a lot of places to find hope. We mentioned the movements around the police brutality, for example. But I think politically, you know, in terms of believing that the electoral system can save us, I think most of us have very little hope in that. And, you know, I think the last time I was excited about the elections was in 2008 for Obama. I was excited uh, for that. I did think maybe this was the first chance I had seen in my lifetime of a progressive um, becoming president. But, you know, as a lot of people warned people like me at the time, they said, well, he's not really a progressive and you're you're fooling yourself. And I think probably that was true. You know, they were probably right. Uh, he's done a few decent things. But, I mean, you know, he's more, more or less a Clintonite himself, you know, so – I think when you put a lot of hope in those things and they don't turn out the way you want, of course, you're going to feel pretty beaten down. And I think people do feel beaten down about the electoral system. I mean, my goodness, they, well, they're anticipating, what, $5 billion are going to go into this presidential race for 2016. I mean, it's it's disgusting. I mean, yeah, by exactly. definition, that, that is not going to be progressive. You know, you're not going to have a progressive outcome. Yeah, it's disturbing. I mean, even the recent Chicago elections, uh, Rahm Emanuel, I believe, had eleven to twelve million dollars for, and that's I'm like for a city campaign. That's when you're a Democrat too, which is like a no-brainer in Chicago. I mean, he had other Democrats opposing him, but it was just like, what do you? How do you run a? And the campaign is really short, and it's just like, gosh, of course nobody else is going to win. All right. It's um, yeah. You have to be a multimillionaire to even run. I mean, is what it comes down to. You know, it's not. How is that a democracy? It's not. It's it, it's a democracy amongst the rich. You know, we get to we get to vote for our favorite rich person. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know. We but should have uh, playing cards. Our favorite rich people. Yeah. And, yeah. Exactly. And just uh, sort of back to the religious exemption thing, because, like, I find, uh, like, you know, what's in Indiana when they're claiming it's a religious right not to serve homosexuals and that sort of thing. Uh, do you th do you think this is that those arguments have any legs? Because it seems like to me the Supreme Court would knock that down in two seconds. But do you do you think this is just a temporary thing that these people are doing to stir the pot, or do you do you believe there's actually a right there? Well, I you know I'm a little concerned that that you know with the case like the Hobby Lobby case that the Supreme Court decided that. The Supreme Court sadly may be sympathetic to some of these religious arguments, you know. So I can't say I can count them out. I mean, I think they're a ruse, and I, I think you know they're wrong. But do they have some legal legs? They might, you know, because you have a very right-wing Supreme Court right now who may be very open to these uh, to, to these arguments. So. So, for example, Duquesne, we think we're going to win pretty handily in the lower levels with the National Labor Relations Board. But then once they appeal to the circuit court in the U.S. Court of Appeals, you know, it's going to be a real fight at that point. You know, they, they, and, and, and if it gets to the Supreme Court, it'll be an even bigger fight. So I would say uh, that they probably have some real legal legs there, unfortunately.
Wow, that's that's just unbelievable. You know, because it's like, it, where does one draw the line with what a religious exemption is? Because then I could say, you know, I if you create your well, there's a gentleman uh, who I've had on the show, Doug Mesner, who created uh, a, a satanic religion. It's and it's a total farce, but he's doing it to to screw with. Like he's suing in Missouri for uh, abortion rights, saying that it's his religious under his satanic temple that it's a religious right to have an abortion and all and especially so like and workers have to, uh, you know, give benefits for that because it's their religious. Like he's sort of turning the the uh, turning it back on the right and saying, well, this is my religious right, and you have to honor that if and. So it's like, why? Where does one draw the line where they can claim like religious exemption for ra- other sorts of bigotry, like racism? I mean, is is that a possibility? Well, yeah. I mean, that that is the problem that that you can take it to those extremes. Now, of course, what they generally only give the religious rights to so-called established religions. But who who determines something's established? You know, I mean. But yeah, of course, you can take it to absurd extremes. And meanwhile, like again, if we go back to Duquesne, they even said on the stand in the hearing, oh, you know, we have to, you know, get accreditation in order to get financial aid monies in the school or it would be devastating. So they're happy to have the financial aid. Right. They're happy to have the protection of the police. They're happy to have roads that are managed by the Department of Transportation. You know, they're happy, happy to have the benefit of of the law, but then they want to decide what laws are going to follow or not. I mean, to me, it just doesn't, you know, I don't think it's tenable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I agree that, that really bizarre things can happen if we give in too much to that. Yeah. What is, what are, what, what are things people can be doing to help strengthen uh workers rights in this country because i feel maybe maybe people don't know what their rights are or what they can action they can take well i do think you know i work for a union i guess i have to to make that disclaimer but i mean i think the thing to do is to support unions and to uh to unionize your workforces you know to build unions to work with other workers to improve your your benefits and your and your wages. I mean, that's what has to be done. I mean, again, on even put you know, put, putting aside the idea of for, formal unions, you know, we have to get back to the idea that we need to work with our fellow people, our fellow citizens, to to make things better. And it's not going to be done by sitting around playing video games or watching television. You know, we actually have to get out there and fight for our rights. And get in the streets, and uh, you know that uh, that spirit has has been lost in many many respects, and we have to regain it. I think. Yeah, it seems it, it seems maybe people are more hesitant these days because they're just more concerned with. I think people don't view the wider as they're just like, oh man, I don't want to lose my job, I don't want to rock the boat. I mean, people seem more afraid than they used to be. Well, that is true. It is a problem of collective action because there's so few people are engaged that people do feel like they're putting their neck out if they themselves do get engaged and fight back. Um, uh, So you have to be the one to make the first step. But, you know, uh, but let's face it, the people who fought the hardest that I know of in, in my and not my, not my individual memory, but my collective memory are those in the 1930s who built the modern union movement. They did it during the Great Depression and with a world war happening. You know, those people should have had a lot more to fear than we any of us have, right, to, to stick our necks out. So it's a matter of of commitment, I think, and believing in solidarity with with your brothers and sisters. I mean, that might sound corny, but I still believe in that, you know, and I still believe that's how change is going to happen. Yeah, I have. While you're saying that, I'm thinking like I have I have a conflict with because it seems like the movements these days like Occupy what there there was no face to the movement. It was all this anonymous sort of we're all this mass 
and I'm conflicted because I I see the appeal to that because it's you can't take down the one leader, you know, which would be probably easier to do these days to find dirt on somebody and just get it all out there. But I also feel that that's, I'm conflicted because I feel like we movements need a face and a voice to rally everybody. And I feel like uh, this sort of faceless, have a movement, do it on the Internet, isn't really helping. Or maybe I'm ignorant or not educated, but it's not really rallying people like it should. I don't know if you have a take on that. No, I agree. I think there is a – and it's not even so much the question of, of whether there should be a leader or not. The question is whether there should be organizations, right? And I do think the Occupy movement was infected with this hysterical opposition to any organization. And that's ridiculous. I mean, I, I – you know, again, I'm kind of an old-school leftist. I, I believe if you're going to fight these very powerful, very rich institutions – you need to be organized, and you have to have discipline, and you have to have, you know, uh, uh, you have to be organized almost like a, you know, almost quasi-military organization, not with weapons, believe me, because I'm, I'm nonviolent. But, you know, you have to have that sort of discipline to, to win out, and you can't just go around and think that you can have a so-called movement with no demands, with no structure. And that you're going to be able to beat back these incredibly powerful forces that are more entrenched than they have ever been. And I think a lot of that is a re- reaction to the old left, you know, to the Soviet Union and that sort, of, you know, that sort of um, thing. People got afraid of, 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 you know, of structure. They kind of equated it with dictatorship or whatnot. But I don't think you can throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think I think people learned. The building political parties, building organizational structures to work for social change is very important, you know, and they can be democratic, but, you know, they need to be there, I think. Right. Well, thank you very much for your time, Dan. Thank you, Matt. It's always a pleasure, and I appreciate you you remembering me and reaching out to me. It's really great. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Please. Follow Dan Kavalik on Twitter, and uh, he posts on Huffington Post all the time, So, or writes for Huffington Post. Uh, and remember, Amazon link, write a review, follow me on Twitter, go to my website, thematdwire.com. Thank you very much. I love you. National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.